If you're looking for something new and fun and exciting to try out for this Halloween, may I suggest Universal Yums. If you've been here for a little while, you know exactly what Universal Yums is, but if you're new here, or you've just never seen a Universal Yums ad before, let me explain. Universal Yums is a box subscription service, and once you sign up, they're just going to send you a new box each month with delicious treats and snacks from a random country across the world. I've gotten boxes from Russia, Korea, um, Italy, Greece, all over the world, and it's always full of just absolutely delicious food. There's candy, there's chips, there's popcorn, there's other snacks like that. It never disappoints. If you want to try something new this Halloween season, Universal Yums is definitely my go-to. So go down below, click that link in the top of the description, and order a box from Universal Yums. It'll support me and the channel, and you'll get something really awesome to do this Halloween season. Thanks again to Universal Yums, and thanks again to everyone for listening and watching the videos. Appreciate you guys. Now let's get into it. The Pale Man by Julius Long I have not yet met the man in number 212. I don't even know his name. He never patronizes the hotel restaurant, and he does not use the lobby. On the three occasions when we passed each other by, we did not speak, although we nodded in a semi-cordial, non-committal way. I should like very much to make his acquaintance. It is lonesome in this dreary place. With the exception of the aged lady down in the corridor, the only permanent guests are the man in number 212 and myself. However, I should not complain, for this utter quiet is precisely what the doctor prescribed. I wonder if the man in number 212, too, has come here for a rest. He's so very pale, yet I cannot believe that he is ill, for his paleness is not of a sickly cast, but rather wholesome in its ivory clarity. His carriage is that of a man enjoying the best of his health. He's tall and straight. He walks erectly, but with a brisk athletic stride. His pallor is no doubt congenital, else he would quickly tan under this burning summer sun. He must have traveled here by auto, for he certainly was not a passenger on the train that brought me, and he checked in only a short time after my arrival. I briefly rested in my room and was walking down the stairs when I encountered him ascending with his bag. It is odd that our venerable bellboy did not show him to his room. It is odd, too, that with so many vacant rooms in the hotel, he should have chosen number 212 at the extreme rear. The building is a long, narrow affair three stories high. The rooms are all on the east side, as the west wall is flush with the decrepit business building. The corridor is long and drab, and its stiff, bloated paper exudes a musty, unpleasant odor. The feeble electric bulbs that light it shine dimly as from a tomb. Revolted by this corridor, I insisted vigorously upon being given number 201, which is at the front and blessed with southern exposure. The room clerk, a disagreeable fellow with a Hitler mustache, was very reluctant to let me have it, as it is ordinarily reserved for his more profitable, transient trade. I fear my stubborn instance has made him an enemy. If only I had been self-asserted thirty years ago, I should now be a full-fledged professor instead of a broken-down assistant. I still smart from the cavalier manner in which the president of the university similarly recommended my vacation. 
No doubt he acted for my best interests. The people who have dominated my poor life invariably have. Oh well. The summer's rest will probably do me considerable good. It's pleasant to be away from the university. There's something positively gratifying about the absence of the graduate student face. If only it weren't so lonely. I must devise a way of meeting the pale man in number 212. Perhaps the room clerk can arrange matters. I've been here exactly a week, and if there is a friendly soul in this miserable little town, he has escaped my notice. Although the tradespeople accept my money with flattering eagerness, they studiously avoid even the most casual conversation. I'm afraid I can never cultivate their society unless I arrange to have my ancestors recognized as local residents from the last 150 years. Despite the coolness of my reception, I've been frequently venturing abroad. Back in my mind, I have cherished hopes that I might encounter the pale man in number 211. Incidentally, I wonder why he's moved from number 212. There is certainly little advantage in coming only one room near to the front. I noticed the change yesterday when I saw him coming out of his new room. We nodded again, and this time I thought I detected a certain malign satisfaction in his somber black eyes. He must know that I'm eager to make his acquaintance, yet his manner forbids overtures. If he wants to make me go all the way, he can go to the devil. I'm not that sort to run after anybody. Indeed, the surly diffidence of the room clerk has been enough to prevent me from questioning him about his mysterious guests. I wonder where the pale man takes his meals. I've been absenting myself from the hotel restaurants and patronizing the restaurants outside. At each, I have ventured inquiries about the man in number 210. No one at any restaurant remembered his having been there. Perhaps he has entree into the Brahmin's homes of this town. And again, he may have found a boarding house. I shall have to learn if there be one. The pale man must be difficult to please, for he has again changed his room. Baffled by his conduct. If he's so serious of locating himself more conveniently in the hotel, why does he not move to room number 202, which is the nearest available room to the front? Perhaps I can make his inability to locate himself permanently an excuse for starting a conversation. I see we're closer neighbors now, I might casually say, but that's too banal. I must wait for a better opportunity. He's done it again. He's now occupying number 209. I'm intrigued by his little game. I waste hours trying to fathom its point. What possible motive could he have? I should think he would get on the hotel people's nerves. I wonder what our combination bellhop chambermaid thinks of having to prepare four rooms for a single guest. If he were not stone deaf, I would ask him. At present, I feel too exhausted to attempt such an enervating conversation. I'm tremendously interested in the pale man's next move. He must either skip a room or remain where he is, for a permanent guest, a very old lady, occupies number 208. She's not budged from her room since I've been here, and I imagine that she does not intend to. I wonder what the pale man will do. I await his decision with the nervous excitement of a devotee on the track of the eve of a big race. After all, I have so little diversion.
Well, the mysterious guest was not forced to remain where he was, nor did he have to skip a room. The lady in number 208 simplified matters by conveniently dying. No one knows the cause of her death, but it is generally attributed to old age. She was buried this morning. I was among the curious few who attended her funeral. When I returned home from the mortuary, it was in time to see the pale man leaving her room. Already he's moved in. He favored me with a smile, whose meaning I tried in vain to decipher. I cannot but believe that he meant it to have some significance. He acted as if there were, between us, some secret that I failed to appreciate. But then perhaps his smile was meaningless, after all, and only ambiguous by chance, like that of the Mona Lisa. My man of mystery now resides in number 207, and I'm not the least surprised. I would have been astonished if he had not made his scheduled move. I've almost given up trying to understand his eccentric conduct. I do not know a single thing more about him than I knew the day he arrived. I wonder whence he came. There's something indefinably foreign about his manner. Curious to hear his voice, too. I'd like to imagine that he speaks the exotic tongue of some faraway country. If only I could somehow inveigle him into conversation. I wish that I were possessed of the glib assurance of a college boy who can address himself to the most distinguished celebrity without batting an eye. It's no wonder that I'm only an assistant professor. I... I'm worried. This morning I woke to find myself lying prone upon the floor. I was fully clothed. I must have fallen exhausted there after I returned to my room last night. I wonder if my condition is more serious than I suspected. Until now, I've been inclined to discount the fears of those who have pulled a long face about me. For the first time, I recall the prolonged hand clasp of the president when he bade me goodbye from the university. Obviously, he never expected to see me alive again. Of course, I'm not that unwell. Nevertheless, I must be more careful. Thank heaven I have no dependents to worry about. I have not even a wife, for I was never willing to exchange the loneliness of a bachelor for the loneliness of a husband. I can say in all certainty that the prospect of death does not frighten me. Speculation about life beyond the grave has always bored me. Whatever it is, or is not, I'll try to get along. I've been so preoccupied about the sudden turn of my own affairs that I've neglected to make note of the most extraordinary incident. The pale man has done an astounding thing. He has skipped three rooms and moved all the way to number 203. We're now very close neighbors. We shall meet oftener, and my chances for making his acquaintance are now greater. I have confined myself to my bed during the last few days and have my food brought to me. I even called a local doctor whom I suspect to be a quack. He looked me over with professional indifference and told me not to leave my room. For some reason, he does not want me to climb stairs. For this bit of information, he received a $10 bill, which, as I directed him, he fished out of my coat pocket. A pickpocket could not have done it better. He'd not been gone long when I was visited by the room clerk. 
That worthy suggested with a great show of kindly concern that I use the facilities of the local hospital. It was so modern and all that. With more firmness than I had been able to muster in a long time, I gave him to understand that I intended to remain where I am. Frowning sullenly, he stiffly retired. The doctor must have paused long enough downstairs to tell him a pretty story. It's obvious that he's afraid I shall die in his best room. The pale man is up to his old tricks. Last night when I tottered down the hall, the door of number 202 was ajar. Without thinking, I looked inside. The pale man sat in a rocking chair, idly smoking a cigarette. He looked up into my eyes and smiled that peculiar, ambiguous smile that has so deeply puzzled me. I moved on down the corridor, not so much mystified as annoyed. The whole mystery of the man's conduct is beginning to irk me. It is all so insane, so utterly lacking in motive. I feel that I shall never meet the pale man but at least I'm going to learn his identity. Tomorrow, I shall ask for the room clerk and deliberately interrogate him. I know now. I know the identity of the pale man, and I know the meaning of his smile. Early this afternoon, I summoned the room clerk to my bedside. Please tell me, I asked abruptly, who is the man in number 202? The clerk stared wearily and uncomprehendingly. You must be mistaken. That room is unoccupied. Oh, but it is, I snapped in irritation. I myself saw the man in there only two nights ago. He's a tall, handsome fellow with dark eyes and hair. It's unusually pale. He checked in the day that I arrived. The hotel man regarded me dubiously, as if I were trying to impose upon him. But I assure you, there is no such person in the house. As for his checking in when you did, you were the only guest we registered that day. What? Why? I've seen him twenty times. First he had number 212 at the end of the corridor, then he kept moving toward the front. Now he's next door, number 202. The room clerk threw up his hands. You're crazy, he exclaimed, and I saw that he meant what he said. I shut up at once and dismissed him. After he'd gone, I heard him rattling the knob of the pale man's door. There's no doubt that he believes the room to be empty. Thus, it is that I can now understand the events of the past few weeks. I now comprehend the significance of the death in number 207. I even feel partly responsible for the old lady's passing. After all, I brought the pale man with me. But it was not I who fixed his path. Why he chose to approach me room after room through the length of this dreary hotel, why his path crossed the threshold of the woman in number 207, those mysteries I cannot explain. I suppose I should have guessed his identity when he skipped the three rooms the night I fell unconscious upon the floor. In a single night of triumph, he advanced until he was almost to my door. He'll be coming by and by 
to inhabit this room, his ultimate goal. When he comes, I shall be at least able to return his smile of grim recognition. Meanwhile, I only have to wait beyond my bolted door. The doors swinging open slowly. The Boarded Window by Ambrose Beers In 1830, only a few miles away from what is now the great city of Cincinnati, lay an immense and almost unbroken forest. The whole region was sparsely settled by people of the frontier, restless souls who no sooner had hewn fairly habitable homes out of the wilderness and attained to that degree of prosperity which today we should call indigenous. Then, impelled by some mysterious impulse of their nature, they abandoned all and pushed farther westward to encounter new perils and privations in the effort to regain the meager comforts which they had voluntarily renounced. Many of them had already forsaken that region for the remoter settlements, but among those remaining was one who had been the first arriving. He lived alone in a house of logs, surrounded on all sides by the great forest of whose gloom and silence he seemed a part, for no one had ever known him to smile nor speak a needless word. His simple wants were supplied by the sale of barter or skins of wild animals in the river town, for not a thing did he grow upon the land which, if needful, he might have claimed by right of undisturbed possession. There were evidences of improvement. Few acres of ground immediately about the house had once been cleared of its trees, the decayed stumps of which were half concealed by the new growth that had been suffered to repair the ravage wrought by the axe. Apparently the man's zeal for agriculture had burned with a failing flame, expiring in penitential ashes. The little log house with its chimney of sticks, its roof of warping clapboards weighted with traversing poles and chinking of clay at a single door and directly opposite a window. The latter, however, was boarded up. Nobody could remember at a time when it was not. And none knew why it was so closed, certainly not because of the occupant's dislike of light and air, for on those rare occasions when a hunter had passed that lonely spot, the recluse had commonly been seen sunning himself on the doorstep if heaven had provided sunshine for his need. I fancy there are a few persons living today who ever knew the secret of that window, but I am one, as you shall see. The man's name was said to be Murloc. He was apparently seventy years old, actually about fifty. Something besides years had had a hand in his aging. His hair and long beard were white, his gray lustrous eyes sunken, his face singularly seamed with wrinkles which appeared to belong to two intersecting systems. In figure, he was tall and spare, with a stoop of the shoulders, a burden-bearer. I never saw him. These particulars I learned from my grandfather, from whom I also got the man's story when I was a lad. He had known him when living nearby in that early day. One day, Marlock was found in his cabin, dead. It was not a time and place for coroners and newspapers, and I suppose it was agreed that he died from natural causes or I should have been told, and should remember. I know only that with what was probably a sense of the fitness of things, the body was buried near the cabin, alongside the grave of his wife, 
who had preceded him by so many years that local tradition had retained hardly a hint of her existence. That closes the final chapter of this true story, excepting indeed the circumstance that many years afterward, in company with an equally intrepid spirit, I penetrated to the place and ventured near enough to the ruined cabin to throw a stone against it and ran away to avoid the ghosts which every well-informed boy thereabouts knew haunted the spot. But there is an earlier chapter that's supplied by my grandfather. When Murlock built his cabin and began laying sturdily at it with his axe to hew out a farm, the rifle, meanwhile, his means of support, he was young, strong, and full of hope. In that eastern country whence he came, he'd married, as was the fashion, a young woman in all ways worthy of his honest devotion, who shared the dangers and privations of his lot with a willing spirit and light heart. There's no known record of her name, of her charms of mind and person. Tradition is silent, and the doubter is a liberty to entertain his doubt, but God forbid that I should share it. Of their affection and happiness, there is an abundant assurance in every added day of the man's widowed life. For what but the magnetism of blessed memory could have chained that venturesome spirit to a lot like that? One day Murlock returned from gunning in a distant part of the forest to find his wife prostrate with fever and delirious. There was no physician within miles, no neighbor, nor was she in a condition to be left to summon help. So, he set about the task of nursing her back to health, but at the end of the third day she fell into unconsciousness arid so passed away, apparently with never a gleam of returning to reason. From what we know of a nature like his, we may venture to sketch in some of the details of the outline picture drawn by my grandfather. When he convinced that she was dead, Murlock had sense enough to remember that the dead must be prepared for burial. In performance of this sacred duty, he blundered now and again, did certain things incorrectly, and others which he did correctly were done over and over. His occasional failures to accomplish some simple and ordinary act filled him with astonishment like that of a drunken man who wonders at the suspension of familiar natural laws. He was surprised, too, that he did not weep, surprised and a little ashamed. Surely it is unkind not to weep for the dead. Tomorrow, he said aloud, I shall have to make the coffin arid and dig the grave, and I shall miss her when she is no longer in sight, but now... She is dead, of course, but it is all right. It must be all right somehow. Things cannot be so bad as they seem. He stood over the body in the fading light, adjusting the hair and putting the finishing touches to the simple toilet, doing all mechanically with soulless care. And still, through his consciousness ran an undersense of conviction that all was right, that he should have her again as before, and everything he explained. He had had no experience in grief. His capacity had not been enlarged by use. His heart could not contain it all, nor his imagination rightly conceive it. He did not know he was so hard-struck. That knowledge would come later and never go. 
Grief is an artist of powers, as various as the instruments upon which he plays his dirges for the dead, evoking from some the sharpest, shrillest notes, from others the low, grave chords that throb, recurrent like the slow beating of a distant drum. Some natures it startles, some it stupefies. To one, it comes like the stroke of an arrow, stinging all the sensibilities to a keener life, to another as the blow of a bludgeon, which in crushing benumbs. We may conceive Murlock to have been that way affected, for no sooner had he finished his pious work than sinking into a chair by the side of the table upon which the body lay, and noting how white the profile showed in the deepening gloom, he laid his arms upon the table's edge and dropped his face into them tearless, yet unutterably weary. At that moment came in through the open window a long, wailing sound like the cry of a lost child in the far deeps of the darkening woods, but the man did not move. Again, and nearer than before, sounded that unhealthy cry upon his failing sense. Perhaps it was a wild beast, perhaps it was a dream, for Murloc was asleep. Some hours later... That afterward appeared, this unfaithful watcher awoke and lifted his head from his arms, intently listened. He not know why. There in the black darkness by the side of the dead, recalling all without a shock, he strained his eyes to see. He knew not what. His senses were all alert, his breath was suspended, his blood had stilled its tides as if to assist the silence. Who? What had awakened him, and where was it? Suddenly the table shook beneath his arms, and at the same moment he heard, or fancied that he heard, a light, soft step. Another. Sounds as of bare feet upon the floor. He was terrified beyond the power to cry out or move. Perforce he waited, waited there in the darkness through seeming centuries of such dread as one may know, yet lived to tell. He tried vainly to speak the dead woman's name, vainly to stretch forth his hand across the table to learn if she was there. His throat was powerless. His arms and hands were like lead. Then occurred something most frightful. Some heavy body seemed hurled against the table with an impetus that pushed it against his breast so sharply as nearly to overthrow him. And at the same instant... He heard and felt the fall of something upon the floor with so violent a thump that the whole house was shaken by the impact. A scuffling ensued, and a confusion of sounds impossible to describe, Murlock had risen to his feet. Fear had by excess fortified control of his faculties. He flung his hands upon the table. Nothing was there. There is a point at which terror may turn into madness and madness incites to action. With no defined intent, from no motive but the wayward impulse of a madman, Murlock sprang to the wall, with a little groping seized his loaded rifle, and without aim discharged it. By the flash which lit up the room with a vivid illumination, he saw an enormous panther dragging the dead woman toward the window, its teeth fixed on her throat. Then there were darkness, blacker than before, and silence. And when we returned to consciousness, the sun was high in the wood vocal with the songs of the birds. 
The body lay near the window, where the beast had left it when frightened by the flash and report of the rifle. The clothing was deranged, the long hair in disorder, the limbs lay anyhow. From the throat, dreadfully lacerated, had issued a pool of blood not yet entirely coagulated. The ribbon with which he had bound the wrist was broken. Hands were tightly clenched. Between the teeth was a fragment of the animal's ear.